0: century upon us, or what I began to call the possibility of the second Holocaust in about 2003. Talk about being mocked for telling the truth. Now it is my pleasure to introduce Professor Duran, who is a historian of the early American Republic at Fordham University. so we get here at Yale.
1: anyone say thank you to um, the, uh, the, uh Brandeis is probably the last university um, in the United States where you would expect uh, to find the storm developing over an invitation to the Israeli ambassador. Uh, but the university selection of Michael Oren as its uh, 2010 commencement speaker triggered a protest uh, and at least an ugly controversy that reverberated uh, through the Jewish community in the United States and abroad. The opposition to Orange can be dismissed as one more meaningless academic theater, similar to the ones that Barack Obama faced at Notre Dame, and John McCain at the New School, Phyllis Schlafly at uh, um, Washington University in St. Louis, and then so many others. Um, indeed, all was said and done. Brandeis' uh, outgoing president Jehuda Reinhardt, never wavered. Oren came, mm-hmm. got his honorary degree, uh, and uh, made uh, a speech that was uh, soon forgotten. Fears of protests and disruptions, like the ones that uh, he faced at the University of California, Irvine, um, did not materialize. Uh, the episode is thus secure uh, in the uh, dustbins of... Uh, mountains that turns into mall hills. But there is something more about the controversy. Can you hear me by the way? There's something more about the controversy that was nevertheless uh, alarming, for it exposed um, a reality in the Jewish community's academic safe haven. Oren was opposed because in, 19, um, in 2009, during Operation Cast led uh, he did reserve service Uh, At the IDF spokesman, uh, where he defended the Israeli position. You see it here with CNN's uh, John uh, Roberts. But of course, this was merely uh, a ruse. The opposition originated in a simple fact that Michael Oren was the official representative of the state of Israel. Opponents charged that Oren was uh, too controversial, and I'm quoting, to be a graduation speaker, as if the ideal graduation speaker is a hallmark card. Um, the, but that's what the uh, uh, president of the uh, local chapter of J Street declared. And the editorial uh, board of the student's newspaper, the Justice, agreed. Other opponents were less circumspect. Computer science uh, professor Harry Merrison, uh, this guy over here, uh, who is, I think his father's Jewish and he's. Very fond of declaring that his father's Jewish, as he uh, uh, you know, attacks Israel, charged that uh, in honoring an apologist for dropping quote white phosphorus on Gaza civilians, the university was um, compromising its traditional commitment to social justice. Flyers left on the uh, seats on the in the morning of the commencement accused Oren of defending war crimes in Gaza and mocked his, and I quote, his astounding talent uh, to twist oppression into victory. It is a not taking place in Brandeis that these positions, however abhorrent or absurd, would have hardly merited the mention. We have gotten used to uh, much worse, fire bombings at Hillel, violent assaults on Zionists and uh, activists, and violent assaults on yarmulke-wearing um, students. But it did happen at Brandeis. Uh, uh, it happened at America's Jewish-sponsored university. That a student newspaper at Brandeis would consider the Israeli ambassador too controversial shows how far down the slippery slope, sorry, Richard, uh, we have fallen. And nothing is more telling of the atmosphere at Brandeis than the arguments put forward by those defending the orange invitation. This is the highlight of my intellectual life, this slide. Um, um, Eddie Benatar, uh, which is uh, this um, girl over here, I'm related to her, Um, she's my daughter. Um, (laughs) That's why, I mean, this whole contract was worth (laughs) it. Okay, I'm done. Hedy Benatar, who is, my daughter happens to be the student representative of the Board of Trustees. Uh, She wrote an editorial uh, in the student newspaper that defended uh, Oren's um, selection, because she said he was a first-class historian who produced brilliant work. And that's what qualified him for the award. My daughter, who is also the president of the, uh, of the Brandeis Zionist Alliance, uh, argued that Oren was invited for his academic achievements, not his political ones. While well, she effectively and objectively, I would say, uh, brilliantly, uh, uh, <laughs> cornered the opposition to Oren um, into an anti-free speech uh, position, she said nothing, nothing of the symbolic importance of of Brandeis standing by Israel at this time. Assuming an even lower profile, the University Hillel avoided taking a stand, even though its director, Larry Sternberg, and it's a very intelligent fellow over here, though not as the other person, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, believes, believes and I quote, that denying Oran or any representative of the state of Israel the right to speak at commencement is beyond the line. Steel Sternberg chose the informal uh, route by reaching out to the individual students who wrote a, the Justice editorial, which of course, by the way, did not make any difference. The Justice editorial, the Justice did not reverse its position that opposed inviting the Israeli ambassador. Sternberg believes that calling out the students who wrote the piece, or, or people who opposed Oren, calling them out for what, what really, uh, the opposition meant would have triggered a substantial backlash against Israel supporters on campus who would be seen as dogmatic, intolerant, and all too quick to label all critics anti-Semites. Now Sternberg has come under criticism uh, by parents and alumni who wished Hillel had taken, maybe for the first time, a more principled stand. But as he sees it, radical anti-Zionism is a minor phenomenon at Brandeis advocated by a small group of marginal students and faculty. Taking a principal stand that would have be backwards. And now I'm going to I'll give you two slides and I'm, I'm, of what Stern, Sternberg wrote to me following a discussion that we had uh, over the matter. And I, I think that I would like you to, I'm going to read it that you will see it because I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an argument that we need to face. And that's what Sternberg wrote. In this sense, there are no right actions in such matters. Only more or less effective ones. And effectiveness itself is subjective. For one parent who called me, the most effective thing Hilel or I could have done would have been to lambast those who led their charge to rescind the invitation to Oren by standing, among other things, by stating among other things, that they were self hating Jews. This parent literally told me that this would be the best thing to promote Jewish identity on campus and to act in support of Israel. He was disappointed that I did not agree with his assessment and at first accused me of being weak. By the end of a 20-minute conversation, he noted that he understood why his approach might not be the best thing for the Jewish identity or for Israel, but he still thought it was the right thing to do because it was honest. And now comes Sternberg's argument. The penchant in the Israel advocacy world, to believe that such, quote-unquote, truth-telling is both necessary and effective is, for me personally, the single greatest obstacle to overcome in our gaining support for Israel among Jews and others. It is ironic that so much is expended in dollars and efforts by so many people, by so many, what
0: I'll call the feel-good activity of speaking their truth, which undermines support instead of building it.
1: Now, Sternberg, and I think we have to, uh, to address this counterargument. Sternberg and my daughter uh, were obviously correct in reading the political map on campus. But why is it so controversial? to make a principal stand and declare that opposition to having Israel's ambassador speak at commencement is unacceptable bigotry at Brandeis. A university that, like the state of Israel, was founded in 1948 by assertive Jews. And I want to make a, 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 um, um, a statement here that um, um, my connection to Brandeis it transcends three generations. My mother-in-law was on the first graduating class. Both my wife and I went to Brandeis. Um, to my brother in law went to Brandeis. Two of my children went to Brandeis. Right? My daughter still my son, graduated. So, uh, our family supported Brand- Brandeis with our heart, with our feet, and most painfully with our wallet for the last six decades. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is not, uh, uh, so what is the source of this fear? To come out and say, hey, this is simply unacceptable. And I would like to give two examples of two university forums. One of faculty of one of students that have contributed much to creating an atmosphere of intimidation on the Walton campus. Of course it would be foolish to attribute um, um, radical anti-Zionism and Brandeis to this or that group exclusively. Universities operate universities operate in a fluid and interdependent <coughs> academic world. What students do at at San Francisco State, or UC Irvine, echoes around other campuses. And the same goes for faculty. In fact, faculty are even more homogeneous. Almost all faculty get their news and analysis from the same five or six sources. BBC, uh, 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 NPR, New York Review books, New York Times, The Guardian and a couple of more, I'm missing, but that's about, you know, if you look at what, what you, people in the humanities website just yeah. read, that's what they read, those are the sources. Uh, people who are really, really avant-garde would occasionally read the Wall Street Journal, though I've never met anybody. Um, <laughs> it's only a you Well, know, it's, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's not something that, you know, nobody ever says, I am so interested. that even, in terms of, you never hear something, I have so many, I so Wall Street Journal. You know like exactly, you wouldn't dare to read. Um, <laughs> now, Brandeis has a long-faced, unique... Commi- pra- pra- so Brandeis is a long commitment to a social justice. And while the university's claim to this tradition does um, not set it apart from others, inside Brandeis um, the assertion continues to, to resonate. I want to point out, that this is actually one of the strangest things about Brandeis, Brandeis' claim to be a unique, leader in the field of social justice. It's a—it's uh, uh, one of those PR things that can keep on clean, it's completely uh, fabricated in a sense that uh, Brandeis has, is so behind any Catholic university in the world, it does more than, than, than Brandeis, according to the poor. But you know, when, when we were two students, uh, my wife and I looked for it at campuses together with our daughter, we went to Tufts, um, and because our daughter wanted to look at Tufts as well, and so we had this wonderfully cute guy who was a tour guide, um, very, very attractive, um, and um, he was—he um, uh, was talking to us about Tufts' commitment to something special that he called Tikkun Olam, uh, and the best thing about it, he even pronounced the Hebrew correctly. You know, and that's what you need to tell. Anyway, Brandeis—there is a long tradition. Brandeis doesn't have a radical chapter in its past, um, according to university lore. Um, in the 1960s. Half naked students um, served um, LSD-laced Punch um, um, in, on campus. I'm sorry that I didn't make it. I was too young. Um, when, uh, uh, in, the 19, in 1970, uh, Brandeis, uh, two of the top wanted li- people uh, in the United States for crime by the FBI were two Brandeis students who participated in a politically motivated armed robbery um, uh, in Walton, in which they killed a, a, a policeman uh, in the name of justice. Uh, uh, Brandeis posts. Uh, you know, to be the place, of one of, those, two of the most famous radicals in the 1960s, Abby Hoffman, who was also known as the Sandwichman, and Angela Davis, uh, both are Brandeis uh, graduates. Um, and actually, Brandeis is actually where it was the headquarters and the information center for the student strike of 1970 uh, against the invasion of Cambodia that, that is made famous by the killing at Kent State. So Brandeis does have this sort of radical are passed, and in some circles the university still rests on these laurels, and some high school activists are uh, therefore attracted to the university uh, for this reason. I'll be much less than 15. I don't worry, I'm a very generous (laughs) man. Uh, uh. Student opposition to Israeli policies has been a common feature um, of the university's life uh, for decades, but even during the height of the uh, protests over the Lebanon war and the first intifada, no one really challenged the Jewish Jewish right for self-determination. This has changed. In 2008, the university uh, student senate refused to uh, pass a resolution commemorating Israel's 60th anniversary. Brandeis. Uh, uh, students for Justice in Palestine, and, in, uh, and it's many Muslim students. And by the way, Brandeis, how many students Brand, Muslim in Brandeis is a controversial question. Some sources of say 300, some people say more, or some people say less. The question is, Brandeis is heavily recruiting Muslim communities, including in Palestinian areas, to bring Palestinians to, 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 to Brandeis. Um, these these uh, openly and legitimately, they advocate for the Palestinian cause but their activity is part of a particularist history and movement. More relevant to Brandon's tradition of radicalism is a group of progressive students who uh, want to rekindle the activism of the past. Some of them um, share their ideas on a student website called Innermost Parts, and you have this, uh, this is the Innermost uh, Parts. Um, the, uh, uh, this is a play on, of course, on Brandeis' seal uh, that was originally says truth on, onto to its innermost uh, parts. Initiated by student by, by Israeli activist Saar uh, Masahi, uh, the blog gives students the opportunity to write about international, local, and personal affairs uh, with a leftist bent. During the Oran controversy, the blog featured a lively conversation about how to receive the invitation to, I quote, a propagandist for a regime that does not respect the human rights. Forum bloggers organized demonstrations and initiated a petition to boycott the commencement should the invitation to Oren not be rescinded. And it's important not to exaggerate the dimensions of student anti-Zionism in Brandon. For all the hoopla and the noise, Demonstrations drew by the accounts of the, own, of, of the uh, innermost parts uh, organizers 10 to 20 students. By the way, um, you know how they uh, excused it? Right-wing conspiracy uh, to, to, prevent the, to, to, to prevent students from demonstrating. And the Boston Globe put a picture of those 10 people up on the front page. Rear of course! They tried to take over the president's office. You know, they couldn't get in, the secretary didn't let them. I don't know what exactly. I mean, we're talking about 10 people, you know. Uh, uh, the, uh, and some of the opponents were deeply ambivalent. Masaki himself, for example, wrote a, a moving personal blog. And I have here the quote that, that, that he wrote that, that I think you know is very moving. He says, uh, Oren divides me. Please understand, I'm a patriotic Israeli citizen. I love my country. I'm also a proud leftish. And people on, on, on the left tend to be pretty harsh on Israel. This reproduction has torn my heart for years already. Now he's about 20, so <laughs> but it's okay. <laughs> he's very sweet. I mean, this is a very sweet kind of thing, you know. Um, now, I cert- I certainly sympathize, sympathize with Masaki's sentiments. I often feel the same. No one really supports every policy of Israel, uh, or of the Israeli or that any government. And even outright hawks, and I can tell you that, even outright hawks cringe when they hear of brutality or abuse. I mean, this is just uh, contrary to what people uh, try to portray them as. What Masaki and his fellow progressive students failed to grasp is that in opposing the invitation for the official representative of the democratically elected government of Israel to speak at the university commencements, they were striking an alliance with those who seek to legitimize Israel and demonize Israel. On the faculty front, um, uh, the opposition centered with professors subscribing to um, a list called Concerned People at Brandeis. It's a listserv. In November 2002, these two professors, Robert Lang, he's a guy who is retired long ago, he's from physics, and Gordy Feldman, uh, this Gordy is about 80. Uh, uh, Did you ever take a Gordy class? Right, uh, I, 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 yeah, yeah. Gordy was uh, old when I was at Brandeis, he's still there, um, and... Um, right? He's a Moloch. Yeah, well, yeah, he's, he's about 80 years old. Gordy Feldman is his sociology uh, formed a web-based forum in opposition to the Iraq War, so that's the origin, origin of this. Mm-hmm. The listserv quickly broadened its focus to feature numerous exchanges about a variety of topics usually list members, um, share links to leftist pieces um, in newspapers and magazines, um, and it remains active. Uh, at the moment, list members include 92 subscribers, I am one, um, uh, through, uh, I just wanted to, do this. I, I got, uh, I, I knew Gordy, I, I took his class, um, and I got him to put me on the list uh, um, quite a while ago. Um, it, it, uh, is that, So most of the uh, links about Israel and Palestinian issues are put by three or four people. Gordy, this is a computer science uh, professor, and Hindley, and I'll talk to you about him in a second. Uh, The most prominent feature of the Israel-related material is the absence of any discrimination between substantial pieces and wild rumblings. Everything and anything that is anti-Israel is kosher. <clears throat> Some of the articles articulated by the list include cutting and pointed exposés of Israeli misconduct, brutality, and even callousness. Others are critical reports from radical Israeli and international organizations. Finally, there are pieces that clearly cross the line between criticism and hate. I have read comparisons of Israel and Nazi Germany and notes about Jewish control of banks the media and Congress. This is an intellectual forum at Brandeis sponsored by the faculty shared by the faculty. Uh, The blood Bible that American boys are being sacrificed for the interests of Israel seems to be an article of faith. Everybody agrees that. Uh, Articles about conspiracies against Arabs and Muslims and the poor are featured, and there are those conspiracies are directed from two places. It's interesting how these places work together. The West Bank and Wall Street. I never knew there were links between the two, but apparently there are. Um, and APAC, Cabal, controls American foreign policy. All of those things are common features of those things. Uh, let me give you some other things. Uh, uh, the, the, the person they hate most is the former president, Yehuda Reinhardt. They believe that Reinhardt, he's still present, but he's a big guy. They believe that Reinhardt came to Brandeis to Zionize the university, to turn it into an option of Israel. And uh, and they openly say that, and and, and they they attack him constantly, even though four years ago, Yehuda Reinhardt, again, against the position, gave an honorary degree to Tony Kushner. Tony Kushner, a man who has if you read Alvin's fantastic article, if you have not read Alvin's article, you have no right to live. Um, <laughs> 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 um, if you read, Alvin devotes a couple of you know, page to to, to, to Kushner as uh, um, so, yeah, a he gave it to Kushner, but no, he's a designer. Now, um, and the, another thing interesting about this this um, list that I think we all uh, we all in the um, oh, many of the members, sorry, in in this. Uh, conference, uh, shared similar experiences, and that is the utter absence of tolerance that happens if you dare to challenge. A brave undergraduate um, dared to join the list and to post articles that were critical of Hamas. They kicked him off the list! They blocked him! Um, <laughs> attacks on Jews in Israel are never mentioned. Tolerance, and this is, an hard, this is a sentence that I uh, I have to footnote in uh, uh, personal literature, said well, tolerance is reserved only for the intolerant. Um, different points of view on the political map are classified as right wing nuts. N- uh, right wing nuts. Uh, of paper in other words, there's marginalization. I'm just not going to read this, so, this is just going to be an example uh, of the stuff that they put on the blog. Uh, I'm going to move on, just so you can read it yourself. Now, wild and vicious assaults on Zionism on college campuses in Europe and in the United States are so hardly news. Nearly every school uh, uh, features anti-Israel events and, uh, and fairs and invites speakers that rail against Israel and its supported in the United States. When Norman Finkelstein was invited to speak at Fordham, a coalition by a coalition of Muslim and radical students, upset uh, Jewish students approached me and asked what we should do about it. My response was similar to Sternberg's. I said, do nothing. Because a move to cancel the protest uh, would fit us as anti-free speech. And a protest by us would simply draw other people to the to, to, to a talk that would be would have been otherwise attended only by they're crazy nuts. But the student responded to me rather uh, despondently. And she said, Why is it? Uh, and I just remember it so quickly. Why is it that it's, um, you're not allowed to bring a, a racist speaker or a uh, homophobic speaker to campus, but it's completely okay to bring anti Semites? And my response to her was, That's the Jewish condition. Um, but you see, it was supposed to be different at Brandeis. I want to point out to you that this is a picture that I didn't do. What undergraduate Brandeis did for you, this is a picture of Reinhardt um, that they all used to uh, to with uh, uh, Photoshop, and they put stuff in his hands. I didn't put anything in his hands. But they put whatever you, you can imagine what they put in his hands. I'm not, gonna go there. I'm not that dirty. Um, uh, it was uh, it was supposed to be different at Brandeis. The Jewish-sponsored university was a form of American Zionism, a place where, as Brandeis founding president Abraham Sacker put it, we will be hosts at last. It was to be a secular institution of of teaching and research sponsored by American Jews. But the Jewish character of the institution was to be sui generis. It operates according to the Jewish calendar, and it accommodates Jewish special needs like kashrut. More importantly, it is supposed to be a place where Jews are treated equally where they would be able to walk proudly as equals, and where they would not fear standing up to anti-Semites. While Brandeis became one of the most distinguished universities in the United States, it failed to deliver on its promise to Jews. To be sure, the atmosphere in the undergraduate college is unmistakably Jewish. But the university's academic reputation rose, as it rose, it began to move away from its Jewish roots. Racial, geographic, and religious diversity policies, combined with with athletic uh, recruitments, discriminate against Jewish applicants. It's much harder to get into Brandeis if you're Jewish than if you're not Jewish. Tours for prospective students that I took, and I took quite a few, some of them, did not mention anything Jewish or Jew. They don't even tell you how many Jews are at Brandeis. But the tour guides and deans do mention a lot, talk a lot about the Red Sox. And I got to stop. The man over there. Two minutes? <laughs> <laughs> Three. Two minutes, I guess? Three. Three, I guess. Okay. <laughs> just, I, I, I mean, there needs no <laughs> questions. No, okay. Well, let's not. Um, all right. All right, so... Uh, the... The, in the 1980s, Brandeis decided to try to move away from its Jewish uh, roots. It formed a committee former committee headed by Gus Reynas, who actually is one of the heads of this institution. And Gus Reynas formed the committee, and they decided the best policy for Brandeis to move ahead is to yeah. g- D5 de- That's the coin, they coined the term. It's amazing that Gus Rainers is, uh, uh, you know, is it was there on this committee. And it, it was a president, and it was a really bankrupt university. Um, by, they first, they wanted to serve pork and shellfish, and then um, they should build a gym that really would befit fit uh, USC uh, rather than Brandeis. And daily really backdrop. Reinhardt saved the university, uh, but um, uh, but he's moving up. And he's leaving a university uh, where chilling anti uh, zionist discourse is an accepted feature of the intellectual landscape. One paragraph. The great scholar of, uh, uh, of uh, Gershom Scholl famously wrote Hannah Arendt that its an egregious, egregious numerous historical and factual errors aside, Eichmann in Jerusalem betrayed a profound absence of Ahabat Yisrael, to which Anne responded that indeed she had none. She did, however, <laughs> have plenty of love for the Nazi Heidegger. Modern-day demonizers followed the her path. They don't have an emotional connection to Israel or to Jewish history. Adams blamed the Judenrat for the Holocaust and they blamed Zionists. for All that has gone wrong in the Middle East since 1880. Arend was uncomfortable with Jewish assertiveness, and modern-day Jewish demonizers of Brandeis and elsewhere share her shame. And until we share this shame, we will never be host this last. Thank you.
0: Oh, no. Okay, so then this is a discussion that you must continue in your lives
2: as you go forward. And it is connected Thank you. Dear colleagues, ladies and gentlemen, sorry for shortening your break for another 30 seconds, but please, oh, no break, okay? so... <laughs> apologize even more. Uh, we've come across what we find in the discussions, and we'd like to uh, lay out our arguments in a, a little leaflet that will be distributed to you now. If any of you still have the energy, we are very open to a debate uh, as soon as this whole thing uh, is over, and we would be very happy nice to get your comments or any of your thoughts.
0: Thank you. <laughs> Excuse me. and he's the first director of the pair
2: Clearly identifiable anti-Semitism, a mix of Islamist inspired hatred and imported conspiracy theory, that has generated a discourse of anti-Semitism that imagines a region or at times the world rich of Jews. This is arresting, alarming, and it demands our attention. And rightly it has it has received our attention along with those who would prefer to turn a blind eye to this. However, there is a problem. And this problem was never greater, I think, than in the session we've just heard. And the problem is this. For those of us who want to speak out against the occupation, not as it was referred to earlier today as the alleged occupation, but against the occupation and what it inevitably does to an occupying polity and society. Those who do so have had their motives excoriated and produced. and uh, and we've been told how we give comfort uh, to the anti-Semites. And there clearly is a political problem here. But I'm left with the feeling that it, it remains needful to be able to speak out, both against the occupation and against human rights abuses, whether they take place on one side of the dispute or the other, and to speak out at the same time against anti-Semitism. And I think too many of the papers at this conference, not least the papers in this last session, have made it very hard to find a space in which to do that. I want to say one other thing which I wasn't going to say, but I, I feel found to the reasons um, uh, that you will understand. Most of the people who were attacked in Alvin's presentation are well able to defend themselves. However, Tony Jutt is not. It so happens that I knew Tony Judd, and he was he was kind to me a long time ago in Cambridge when I embarked on doing a thesis on Jewish immigration to London. He took me to see his ninety-year-old father to interview him. I think one has to do him the honour, or at his memory, the honour, because. Whatever one thinks of his arguments, he is a significant intellectual. One has to do him the honor of engaging with his arguments and not of condemning them through personal assassination, accusing him of narcissism. I want to raise some questions about how we approach the subject, the problem of antisemitism. We've been presented with um, compelling evidence of jihadist Islamist murderous rhetoric. And, of course, we cannot but
0: receive this and understand it in the long shadow
2: cast by the destruction of so much of European jury in the Second World War. There is a school of thought which is sometimes expressed in the literature and at this conference that thinks that suggests that anti-Semitism is always murderous. Or potentially so. And alas, too often it has been. But historically, it seems to me that that's not the case. Too much is left out. The anti Semitism of quotidian daily life, as suffered by Jews in the Second Reich, for example, did not presage the enormities of the Third Reich. In short, the social history of anti-Semitism is something we could hear more about. Indeed, we need to explore further what is the relationship between anti-Semitism in daily life, as we encountered in daily life, and anti-Semitism in politics. What is the connection between speech acts and stereotypes and social mobilisation. Industrial genocidal acts are not the same thing as, as the violent, dreadful retribution of neighbours. And we need to be able to make analytical distinctions there if we are to understand the awful phenomenon uh, that we're dealing with. The term anti-Semitism captures all of these phenomena as in doing so, it tends to flatten them. And in particular, it flattens them when conjoined with metaphors drawn from science or science fiction. Ideas, words like virus or more, only increase this tendency. It gives a sense that one form of anti-Semitism has the capacity to transform at any moment under propitious conditions into another does it. It seems to me that the metaphor stands in for an inquiry that has to be undertaken. I want to speak briefly about the second problem with the term anti-Semitism which has come out through some of our discussions. Anti-Semitism is often used in very different ways. In particular, it's sometimes used to refer to an ideology, to a set of intended meanings, and we've heard this in many papers. On the other hand, anti-Semitism has often also been referred to as a set of outcomes divorced from intentions. We've often heard that people in human rights organizations, look, some of them, are motivated by anti-Semitism, we're told, but many of them, we've been told, are well motivated. But the sum total of their actions at the United Nations and NGOs and elsewhere is anti-Semitic. So the, out- the anti-Semitic outcome is divorced from the intention. It seems to me to be no wonder that there is disagreement among academics and out of the world over what is and what is not anti-Semitism when the term is used in such varied ways. In other fields, in other related fields, they have a more, a slightly larger vocabulary. I'm sure not a perfect vocabulary, but if we were to engage with the field of racial studies, for example, the distinction between racism on the one hand and and institutional racism Captures this distinction between intended meaning and outcome. Third, and also I hope briefly, I think we have to confront whether anti-Semitism is a prejudice or is a reasoned discourse. Which isn't to say that it is reason but it is reason as others find it. The emphasis within scholars of anti Semitism is to discuss it as prejudice, as a failure to reason. But I think here we have to confront the problem or the issue of relativism. Not relativism as a totalizing philosophy or as a political position, but as an intellectual strategy. But to many scholars in the humanities, I have, to, I have to report that parts of this conference will look like the conference that time forgot. If we take witchcraft persecution, Norman Code, who had a lot to say about anti Semitism, also wrote about witchcraft persecution. And he too saw witchcraft persecution in the 16th and 17th centuries as a form of prejudice, a failure to reason contrast that with the ways in which anthropologists and historians now treat witchcraft. They treat it by trying to understand the forms, why it made sense to people at the time. They try to recover the reasons and purposes behind witchcraft persecution. Not to justify it, but to understand it as a form of reason which made sense of the world and not as a failure. And indeed, some scholars of anti-Semitism have employed precisely this strategy. I think, for example, of the path-breaking work of Shulamit Volkov. I think, I think we have to engage with this. I think we have to engage with this if we want the academy the human- in, the, in the humanities to take us seriously, not, and I think, I'm not saying that we necessarily have to reproduce those forms of relativism. I don't have a manifesto here. but I think that those of us who don't want to reproduce it, need to engage with it, because otherwise we will be ignored. Lastly, that you'll be pleased to hear, um, I want to... pick up on something which I think was very illuminating, I mean, Dina Porat's comments. Uh, Dina Porat spoke about the the reasons why anti-Zionism has such mobilising effect in the political world. And she spoke about the way in which it combines anti-globalisation, anti-capitalism, anti-Americanism, and third-worldism. And David Hirsch, in his seminar, spoke about the way in which anti-Zionism becomes a symbolic issue. becomes a site of what he called moral panic after the 1960s sociologist, Stan Cohen. This again is a challenge for us. And it's a challenge because it suggests that Jews are not at the centre necessarily, are not always at the centre of the anti-Semites' worldview. The anti-Semitism arises as a second-order effect of another position. And too often, I think, when we study anti-Semitism, we put the Jew at the centre of the worldview of our persecutor. But that might not be the case. So I offer this as food for thought. Um, well, I didn't mean to urge to sound quite so self-serving. Um, so, in conclusion, I believe at this conference we've made an important start. There is more to do, and I look forward to an occasion when we and others can meet again and continue with that work.
0: by looking in my direction uh, and offering a pretty sharp critique of what you believe you heard me say, Uh, you'll understand that I feel the need to look in your direction and critique your critique. (laughs) Uh, I have no problem personally or as a scholar with you speaking out against Israeli policies that you object to and there was nothing whatsoever in my remarks today that was meant to suggest that you or other critics of Israeli policy or Israeli action have no right to do that. So I don't know what you heard me say uh, to bring forth your surprising remarks, which I found objectionable by the way. It's not really in keeping with the format of this kind of conference for one colleague take another colleague to pass, particularly for remarks he never said uh, at such a closing session. Um, if, on the other hand, you and your colleagues who oppose Israeli policies begin to compare those policies to apartheid South Africa or Nazi Germany, you will then, I'm sure you agree, have crossed an impermissible line. And at that point, and only at that point, will you from critics like me and others uh, who simply find that impregnable. Would you like to say anything in reply to what I've just said?
2: I think what I would like to say is that in those parts my remarks I didn't actually. The, the, the parts of my of my remarks which were directed especially at you, Alvin, that concerns at uh, Tony Jones. The other remarks were were really aimed at directed at the accumulative effect of papers that um, that connected the critics of um Israeli policy with people who crossed that line. I think we agree about that about that line. Um, so I have no problem, uh, I, have, uh, um, I have no problem with that. Um, and indeed, some people have been careful to say it is possible to articulate space in which to express that opinion was becoming very narrow.
0: We occupy the spaces we occupy as best we can and so long as we can support our positions intellectually, there's no reason not to continue to speak but one must really be prepared to defend one's position intellectually. Uh, in that regard I won't take back a word of what I had to say about Tony Judd. He was your friend, I never met him. So it's not at home. He was an acquaintance more than a friend that he had been kind
2: right. to me, and 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 it's not. And, and my feeling there, and, and your points about this being an academic occasion are extremely well taken. And it seems to me that the point about an academic occasion is that one needs to engage with the arguments. And I think that the strategy um, of, of uh, dismissing the view in psychological terms it might be right, it might be wrong, but it doesn't engage with the
0: argument. And I think we are under an obligation in the academy to do that. I agree, and I've written about Tony Jod in just the terms that you suggested. Tony Jod was a powerful scholar in terms of his studies of French intellectual history and his last book post war. Otherwise Pope Tony Judt was an anti-Israel polemicist. And in that respect, he himself did not argue in academic terms whatsoever. And if you read Tony Judt, I'm sure you have carefully, the tonal qualities of Tony Judt's voice, whenever he spoke about Israel, conveyed a bitterness, an anger, a hostility that has nothing to do with intellectual argument whatsoever, but has to do with passion. And his passions towards Israel were very negative. And what I did with Tony Drug was expose him by quoting his own words. Now, I'm not sure what else I'm supposed to tell you. Because I didn't even know there was going to be this session um, until I saw the program and my name was listed as stupid. Uh, How much time do I have? Three to five minutes. Uh, We're living in a difficult time. A difficult time is likely to become worse. I personally don't think we're prepared to understand. Um, there are almost no, despite the fact that very large numbers of people at the conference, which is heartening, there are almost no trained scholars anywhere uh, at American universities. If I had to recommend uh, one of my bright undergraduate students, a mentor at an American university where he or she might do PhD work with a focus on anti-Semitism. There's almost no one to whom I could send such a student. There are lots and lots of us who have devoted years of study to the Holocaust. But otherwise, anti-Semitism is an understudied phenomenon in the American Academy. It's an understudied phenomenon. In Israel, as well, my colleague, Dina Barak, uh, she's here, but it's me the same. Uh, in Germany, for many years, there uh, has been a serious research center in Berlin. And as I can hear from listening to some of my younger German colleagues here today, it's heartening to learn a German scholar who's doing this work. But uh, we're only at the very beginning of any kind of serious research effort uh, to engage post-Holocaust anti-Semitism. Uh, not many people thought there would be a serious need in fact to deal with such a phenomenon as post-Holocaust anti-Semitism. But we're living in a time where such anti-Semitism has become resurgent. It has a good deal of energy behind it. Uh, this conference has certainly made a contribution to help understand some of it, but much more work needs to be done. The Institute of Charles Small, to his credit, is established at Yale, uh, was until six months ago the only institute at an American college or university with a research focus, on North America, with a research focus. On anti Semitism. A second such institute has recently been established at my own university. Uh, David is heading up such an institute in England. Uh, there is a long standing institute in Berlin, but it doesn't deal, at least it doesn't deal well with recent anti Semitism. And that's, oh, and two institutes in Israel, Jerusalem and Colombia. That's it. All of which tells me we're just at the very beginning of work that needs to be done. Uh, you've been witness in the last few days, the beginnings of that work, of the goal of you control for uh, the efforts in doing this. Uh, it takes years and years for scholars to train younger scholars to uh, become competent and capable in any field. Meanwhile, however, and by Semitism proceeding the pace, I personally don't think they're prepared to deal with it effectively. There will be more conferences, there will be more complications. Hopefully there will be some help, but I myself am rather gloomy when I look ahead because I fear we're in a very difficult time academic scholars can make kinds of contributions that not many of us um, will see what comes. Thank Thank you.